Good morning, everybody. I'm very thankful to Simon for the welcome and um, thankful to be here with you this morning. And I'm a retired pastor and I have a small privileged role, which is slightly uh, paid, to be here two days a week, Tuesday and Wednesday, and help people with their talks. Um, I've been doing it for a long time. I still have a big L plate on my front and a big L plate on my back, but I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about something you're preparing or give feedback when you've given your talk. Uh, last year, because of the shutdown, it was much more difficult, but I still probably helped with about 120 talks through the year, and my aim is to be the grit in your oyster. That is, I'm going to provoke you for the production of a good pearl sermon, if that makes sense. So um, please do get in touch if you'd like. Let's pray for this uh, few minutes together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would, in your kindness and power, minister to us as we spend a few minutes thinking on this portion of your word. We pray that it would comfort and challenge in the right proportion. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I have begun ministry in a very small church, and the secretary, who's been there for a very long time and is getting elderly, has announced that she will retire. So we put an advertisement in the notice sheet of a couple of nearby churches, and for some reason the advertisement escaped and went all over the place, and I've been getting applications from people in the most bizarre areas. Uh, one lady rang and said she'd picked it up on Gumtree that we had an ad the position vacant. And the people who've been contacting me have no understanding whatsoever of Christianity, no links to church, many of them no interest even in being a secretary. But um, I've had these bizarre conversations trying to say to people, look, this is a church job. It will require a little bit of understanding of the Christian faith. You perhaps need to know your way around the Bible. And in the middle of it, one girl called Angela rang and she said, I would love to know something about Christianity. She said, are there courses that I can do? I would love to know something. <laughs> so I've linked her with a girl who left last year and they're now reading the Bible one-to-one -one each week. God moves in remarkable ways. <laughs> would it surprise you if I said to you that if I hear that she has become a Christian, that that would have appeal to me more than if I heard she was engaged or got into the Olympics or got through cancer or had won lotto. I would be much more interested to hear that she has become a Christian and you're exactly the same. When the Apostle Paul heard that some Colossian people had become Christians, he was rightly thrilled about it. And he wrote this letter to them because the gospel is obviously landed in Colossae like a seed, begun to bear the tree of a church, and the believers have begun to bear the fruit of love, faith, and hope. Now, why does the Apostle Paul not at that point just write a little note to say from prison, so glad you've become Christians, all the best, your loving friend, the Apostle Paul? Well, the answer is because they are his spiritual grandchildren. He'd not been to the place, but his friend or somebody had been and preached the gospel, and he now considers himself in some parental role to want them to grow. And, of course, not only does he want them to grow, but he is also concerned about the dangers which have seeped into the church. 
So um, one, one uh, writer has said the Colossian problem is what is really called spiritual one-upmanship, which always plagues churches. And I want to look briefly at what the Apostle Paul prays for these new believers. These prayers of the Apostle Paul, as you know, are a great gift to us. Uh, we tend to pray often with cliches and vacuous phrases, and we don't even always connect with what we're saying. I don't know if you know the story of the small boy who finds a rat in his back garden and corners it and kills it. And he takes it by the tail and goes running into his house to tell his mum what he's done. And he doesn't know the minister has called in to see his mother and he's talking to her in the kitchen. And he runs in with this rat being held by the tail, calls out, Mum, I found a rat, I cornered it, I killed it. And then seeing the minister, he suddenly says, and I do believe the Lord has called it home. And it's that sort of pious nonsense which seeps into our prayers very easily. And we talk in these vacuous terms. So the Apostle Paul is a big help to us. His prayers do take time to get to grips with. They're like the instructions that somebody gives you to get to their house. The instructions may look awkward, but if you follow them carefully, you'll probably arrive. These prayers are also a corrective to our small-mindedness. Don Carson says in his book on the prayers of Paul, if 80 or 90% of our prayers are for good health, safety on the road, good jobs, success in exams, the emotional needs of our children, success in our mortgage application, how much, says Carson, of Paul's prayers revolve around such things? And if the centre of our praying is far from the centre of Paul's praying, our very prayers may serve as a wretched testimony to the processes of paganisation in our lives. Now, obviously, it's not wrong to speak to the Lord about anything, but you would hope that we would go beyond that, wouldn't you? You'd hope that we'd go beyond these small things, smaller things. And then these prayers are very instructive because everything the Apostle Paul is praying is loaded with wisdom in the context of what the Colossians are facing. And so um, he, he prays most wisely, and I want to think with you about what he says. Now, one way to approach this prayer, which Simon read for us, is to see one big issue, which is to know his will, which will spill over into a number of participial issues like um, living, bearing fruit, growing, thanking. But uh, there are actually three issues which relate to the problems the Colossians are facing. Uh, there is the need to know his will. There is the need to keep going and not be moved or distracted. And there is the need to keep being thankful and not give the, the assumption that you have been shortchanged in the Christian life. So we're going to think about those three very quickly now as the Apostle Paul teaches us in his prayer. First of all, he prays, number one, that we would know God's will. Verse 9, we've not stopped praying, says the Apostle Paul, which doesn't mean I've, I've stopped doing anything else. I never sleep, I never eat, I only pray. What the Apostle Paul means, of course, is that we're not giving up on the praying. We're keeping you on the list. And we're asking God, he says, to fill you with knowledge of his will. Listen carefully to this. Not because you Colossians are a bucket, 
into which some guru, some cult needs to come and supply what is missing. But because you're a small tree planted in Christ, everything you need is in him. You don't need to wait like a bucket for somebody to come and give you what you don't have. You need to grow down into what you've been given. Just as a small child doesn't need more limbs, but needs to grow into what it has, so a Christian doesn't need weird extras, but we need to grow into the Lord Jesus we belong to. Now, what is the will of God in verse 9? We certainly need to grasp his great will, which we're told in chapter 1, verse 20, is that God is at work reconciling things to himself. This is the big overarching major will to know. But we also need his particular will if we're going to walk well, verse 10, and bear fruit. So the Christian truck driver needs to know the big overarching plan of God and also the more specific and particular will of God. And the school pupil needs the big and the small. And the hospital patient needs to know the big picture and the particular. So with the parent the judge, the journalist. We need to know the great will of God, the general will of God, and also his help in the particulars. When I was at um, St Thomas's North Sydney, we had the great privilege of having John Lennox come and preach one Sunday. <laughs> and he said in his lovely Irish way to the congregation, he said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, many of you have come to a tertiary position with your work. You really are clever with your work. But uh, if I may say so, said John Lennox, you're in primary school with your faith. No wonder you find it hard to relate your faith to your work. And the end result of this is that some of the very clever people in the church got together a group to meet on a regular basis and basically express the challenges of their field and how the faith meets the challenges of the field. And that's, I think, what the Apostle Paul is praying here. It's a great prayer for believers, isn't it? To know the great, but also the specific will of God. Please notice also the sequence in verses 9 and 10. He says that you might know his will, to do his will, that you might know him better. What a lovely sequence. It's one thing to know the will. It's another thing to do the will. And in the knowing and the doing comes the knowing of him better. Now, I wonder if you've ever noticed in your Christian life that when you're in those wise phases of the Christian life, and aren't they lovely gifts to us from God when we're in a wise phase of the Christian life and we set ourselves to be obedient whatever, that he seems to speak to us a lot more as if we've become sincere in our listening. And then there are those foolish times where we try to walk two roads at the same time and nothing Christianly really affects us. Not because he stopped talking, but because we've become deaf. And Paul, you see, is praying that the believers will know and do to know God better. Just as Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to know and do, I want you to hear and do. And Paul says in Philippians, to the Philippian Christians, I want you to know and do. And the purpose of this is that we might know him better. Therefore, do you realise that the smallest and most nondescript member of Moore College 
may actually be getting to know God better day by day, while the cleverest member of the college is not, because there is a moral component to our studies, which has got to do with knowing and doing to know him better. Well, that's the first, to know the will. Second, to keep going. Verse 11, he prays that they might have strength and power And you'll notice the strength and power is not, as some churches might teach, for some self-actualizing success. Picture the books of some Christian bookshops, which have all got to do with power for some kind of personal success. But he's praying that they may have strength and power in order to keep going. In in other words, so that in a, a year, they'll still be going. And in a decade, they'll still be going. And in eternity... They will be with Jesus. This is the power of God at work in the Christian not to give up. So that you and I don't give up in the face of disappointment. And we don't give up in the face of serious temptation. And we don't give up in the face of anger or heresy or doubt or suffering. But we keep going. Next Saturday, there is a dinner for a boy called Sam Chapman, and Sam Chapman um, got the worst kind of leukaemia at the age of 18 and died at the age of 29. And the dinner is to remember him. It's a year since he died, and the aim is to gather all his non-Christian friends together and remind them of the hope which he held. But I would say in my pastoral work, I never saw a person to borrow the illustration of Pilgrim's Progress, I never saw a person have so many buckets of water thrown at the fire of their faith. It was just relentless. Disappointment after disappointment, surgery after surgery, setback after setback, and God piped the oil into his faith and kept him going. So he was an example to us. And we're going to remember him next week. Now, we will face the pressure to give up. And if you think I'm talking hot air, let me remind you that some have sat in this very place who are now drifting. If not drifting insignificantly, drifting significantly. The word that the Apostle Paul uses for endurance may mean that you keep on through difficult circumstances. The word for patience may mean that you keep on despite difficult people. And circumstances and people are very difficult. Just think of the circumstances that some missionaries find themselves in. We have no solution for the issue that they're facing. There just isn't an easy answer. And they're tempted to think, well, it'd be good to come home. And then you start to look for reasons to come home. You remember the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians, at one stage he said, we're most perplexed. We don't know what to do. And then there are difficult people. You know, you land on the mission field and you discover that there's another couple from Australia. Great. And they're so difficult. And you and they are thrown together. And it's really hard That's why at Moore College you've got to work on being kind to one another so that the fellowship is warm and wonderful here. And it's so great to have uh, warm staff, kind staff, warm fellow students, kind fellow students. Keep working on that together. 
because otherwise the, uh, the work gets difficult. Well, Paul himself understood the need, didn't he? He knew what difficult circumstances were like. He's writing from prison. He knew what difficult people were like. He'd uh, had to put up with a huge amount of trouble from people, and he praised this for his readers, especially in the face of the troublemakers. Now, we might, of course, wish that God showed his power in more dramatic and uh, dynamic ways, but I remind you that the most powerful evidence of God in the history of the world has been the crucifixion of Christ. That is the most powerful evidence. And when believers keep going, keep going, it's a great evidence of God at work. So he prays. Thirdly, he prays that they would be thankful, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. He doesn't just want them to know the will of God and be crabby, and he doesn't just want them to keep going and be crabby. He wants them to be thankful. And uh, as Paul sits in prison, he does this by reminding the believers in Colossae of their status, verses 12 to 14. Uh, chapter 1, 12 to 14, these verses must be the, one of the most remarkable pictures of the privilege of the Christian life that you can get in the New Testament. He, he looks to the Colossae believers who've probably got lots of problems, but he reminds them of their status. It's like saying to somebody, you've been put into the Australian sports team, there will be bruises. But the status outweighs the bruises. It's like saying to somebody, you've been drawn into the royal family, you will lose some privacy but the privileges outweigh, the status outweighs the difficulty. So look at what he says in verses 12 to 14. And I do urge you to read these verses if you're ever tempted to think that the Christian life is very small bickies. He says in these verses, you've got a heavenly father. You've been drawn into his people through Jesus. Yes, even you Gentiles. You've got a permanent kingdom. You've got a permanent inheritance. You're no longer in the dark the dark of ignorance or the dark of evil. You're part of the kingdom of Jesus, who is the king of kings. You've been redeemed. You'll never be in debt to God. You've been forgiven. You are ready to meet him without fault and with great joy. So when I think in my Christian life that what I'm doing for him outweighs what he's done for me, I have fallen into insanity. Isn't that true? Something has gone wrong. And Paul wisely prays that these Colossians would, would see exactly what they had received. To know his will, to keep going, and to be thankful. Now, friends, just picture the missionary who you take uh, 30 seconds to pray for, that God would help them today to know his will, to keep going, and to be thankful. Would that not be a great thing to pray for a missionary? Think of the principal of Moore College who'd be very grateful for your prayers that he knows God's will, keeps going, and is thankful. Think of your pastor. Think of your family. Think of your congregation. But we forget these things, don't we? They just drop out of our head very quickly. Despite the excellence of the sermons and the lectures here, we forget so much. So I have drilled this prayer into my small head by changing the words slightly so I remember them. And the three words are know, knowledge of God's will, fortitude, 
to keep going, cheerfulness to be marked by thankfulness. Okay? Knowledge, fortitude, cheerfulness. Those three begin with KFC. <laughs> Every time I see a KFC sign or a KFC ad, it reminds me, here is an excellent thing to pray. Knowledge, fortitude, and cheerfulness. And to borrow some very old language, that is a finger-licking good thing to pray. <laughs> Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the great shepherd that you provided in the Apostle Paul, reflecting the great shepherd that you are, keen to give us knowledge of your will, keen to give us endurance that we might go, go on, and keen to fill us with uh, thankfulness so that we might not be cast down. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would wonderfully work these things in us, the needy around the world who are facing great difficulties. And we pray that in the result of this would be as people do know your will and do it, and do keep going despite the troubles, and are still marked by thankfulness that you would be greatly praised, many would be blessed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.